Welcome to Insights, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is on global credit cycles. I'm Sorka Kelly Skolta, head of EMEA Pension Solutions and Advisory Group, and with me today are John Bilton, head of Global Multi Asset Strategy, and Stephanie Flanders, chief market strategist in the UK and Europe within our Global Market Insights Strategy team at JP Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, John, Stephanie, deleveraging was very much the buzzword post-financial crisis, but here we are eight years later and we seem to have more debt than ever. What happened? I don't think it's so much that we've failed to delever. It's just that really we've moved it. Let's face it, we've had, what, four or five years of pretty brutal austerity in a lot of developed nations, the UK, the US and other places. And I think that that has suggested that the public appetite for an aggressive delevering is actually not that high. So what's happened instead? I think, in fact, if you look at the aggregate balance sheet, no, we've not had delevering. However, if you look at, for instance, the banking sector balance sheet, it's worth noting in the US, you've seen assets to equity go from 15 times to around nine times. In the Eurozone, it's about 24 times to 18 times. So if you look at the banking sector, which was really the heart of where the leverage problem sat, then it's significantly much less leveraged than it was pre-crisis. So I think there are reasons for cheer, but at the same time, the aggregate level of leverage does remain pretty high. Yes, and I think I'd say we are clearly still a very highly indebted world, and that's probably going to affect the future path of growth and make it harder for us to have a kind of classic credit-driven cycle over the next few years. But I think the important thing sort of to think, we usually think of debt as being a cause for concern because it can produce another crisis or anything like we saw in 2008. And I think there we can be a little bit reassured by the different composition of the debt that we now have. If you think about the most toxic amounts of debt are in the financial sector or the household sector, or indeed when you've got both of those having been rising at a rapid rate. And of course, that's what you had both of those interacting in 2007, 2008. The financial sector then propagates the crisis to the rest of the country. And if households are affected, if they find, for example, they're sitting on negative net worth because their house prices have gone down and they've got a lot of mortgage debt, well, that means they cut spending. So it has that much bigger effect on the economy. So the fact that we have reduced the level of household debt in many places, and certainly stopped it from reaching the peaks of the past. And as John says, we have substantially reduced the amount of leverage in the financial sector. I think that suggests that that kind of toxic crisis, debt-driven crisis that we had in 2007-8 is much less likely. So I think you're both saying that the risk hasn't necessarily gotten bigger or it may even have reduced overall, but it has changed in nature since the financial crisis. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, so then you're looking at perhaps more slow burn risks. You know, what happens over time in a global economy that has this much debt and in a sense has not fully resolved the issues that it had leading up to the crisis. It's merely shifted them perhaps onto the public balance sheet. And as John suggested, that constrains policy going forward and it probably does contribute to this lower growth environment. We shouldn't forget also that there's a changing geographical composition of debt, which affects certainly the investor standpoint, because we have seen, to some extent, a re-leveraging process in emerging market economies. For various reasons, which John will probably want to discuss, we don't think it poses the same risks as perhaps in the late 90s, when it was very much foreign currency denominated debt linked to very high and rising budget deficits. But still, I think there are causes for concern in the increase in emerging 
emerging market debt, again, particularly in a global economy that's going to make it harder for countries to grow their way out from underneath those debt stocks. Yeah, I'm going to put words in your mouth slightly, Sorker, and I'm going to suggest that you're asking, have we got the same kind of systemic risks that led to the 07-08 crisis? And the reality is, actually, if you look at the numbers, then it doesn't look anything like as bad as it did back then. Stephanie quite rightly said household borrowings come down. If you take the US, 2006, household borrowing was 96% of GDP. As it stands at fourth quarter of last year, it was around 79% of GDP. So it's a significant drop. It's also dropped in Japan. It's also dropped in the Eurozone. It's picked up markedly in China, but it still stands at a relatively low level, about 40% debt to GDP. Bear in mind, Chinese savings are the highest on the planet. So households actually have got really pretty robust balance sheets today. The problem, I think, for the world in terms of growth is not a debt issue. It's that the gradual servicing of debt, whether it be at the household, government or corporate level, is actually preventing investment and consumption today. So it's not a systemic issue related to debt, it's more of a growth issue, and that's a longer-term problem. But in terms of are we facing today another 2007-2008 style you know, financial or household debt-led meltdown, the risks are much, much lower today. You can never entirely rule that kind of thing out, but we're starting from a point where balance sheets are much more healthy. And so, broadly speaking, the systemic risk of debt is probably meaningfully lower today. So, in a way, We're past a risk of crisis like we had in the financial crisis in 2008, but it's a slow burn risk in a way. And how do you think that will play out in markets? How do you think investors should think about those risks from this point? Well, I think as it's always a case of looking for isolated risks and areas where the sort of reassuring picture that John described is less true. We have some countries actually in the developed world, uh, Australia, Canada, that haven't actually made the same kind of progress on the household debt, partly because they didn't have the great rupture that many others in the developed world had in 2007, 2008. In parts of the emerging marketing world, you have, uh, particularly on the corporate sector, has run up a certain amount of debt, and that's an area that is definitely worth watching. So I think even though we have this somewhat reassuring when it comes to sort of things exploding and blowing up the global economy, as perhaps we saw with Lehman's in 2008, there feels like there's less risk of that. But there's always going to be the potential, particularly as we go into a period of rising interest rates in the US, even if we think that's going to be relatively moderate compared to past cycles, that could set some sort of hand grenades off in various portfolios. And it's something people have to definitely keep an eye on. Yeah, I think broadly speaking, when it comes to risks of debt, there's really three things to watch. Number one, household balance sheets. Number two, financial sector balance sheets. And number three, interconnectedness. And we saw household balance sheets causing issues, obviously, in the United States when that kicked off the crisis back in 07, 08. We saw financial sector balance sheets being a problem here in the UK, where we saw a couple of failures of major high street banks. And then, of course, the third point is the uh, interconnectedness or the contagion risk. And we saw that, of course, with the Eurozone crisis. If we look at the complexion of the levels of debt to GDP around the globe today, as mentioned, we're comforted in terms of the levels of debt at the household and financial sector. But Stephanie rightly says there are pockets of pretty high leverage. EM corporates is one of those. The thing to remember, though, is in many cases, these are not massively interconnected with the global financial infrastructure. So while we can see some pretty high levels of debt in Sweden, in Canada, in Australia, number one, these are economies which historically have structurally held a higher level of debt. So that gives you some level of comfort. But equally, although they are developed economies and they matter greatly in their local region, their interconnectedness to the global financial system is rather smaller because 
because of the scale of their asset markets. We would watch those and it is a issue to consider when thinking about an allocation to those countries' assets, but it's not something to think about in terms of where's the broad stroke of interest rate policy going to go over the next 10 to 15 years. That's still going to be much more driven by growth, and it's the overall debt overhang that is probably constraining to that as opposed to pockets of sensitivity. And I think, you know, one point to highlight from that, obviously, is somewhere like China, where mm-hmm. when you think of, you know, investors' favourite things to worry about or to <laughs> fear that it's going to cause the next crisis, China's quite high on a lot of people's lists. And there's certainly good reason to worry about the structure of Chinese growth and the imbalance, which they still really can't get past of either in terms of trying to rebalance their economies and having to run up an awful lot of credit in order to sustain growth while they do that rebalancing. Everyone can see that in many ways, that's an accident waiting to happen. The question is, is it an accident that can blow up the world? And I think it's a very good example of what John was saying about the interconnectedness point, And indeed, also the question of which balance sheet the debt is on. It is very much in the financial sector and the corporate sector, the debt that we see as being unsustainable in China. And it has been growing at very rapid rates that in previous countries have been associated with crises or real financial issues. But public debt in China is still very low relative to GDP. As John mentioned, you still have very high national savings rate. So the government has big pockets for dealing with any kind of debt crisis that does happen. And the exposure of foreign investors to Chinese assets is very small relative to the exposure we had certainly to the US in 2007-8. I think you've got another factor as well, Steph, how long it takes for a debt crisis to crystallise. And you think about it, when Lehman went pop, it happened over the course of a weekend. If China were to face issues, we know that they have the resources and they have the willingness to actually deploy tools to smooth the path to delevering. So if China were forced to market over the course of the weekend like Lehman were, then there may be problems. But the reality is that's not going to happen. So what does it mean over the long term? China have opportunities, I think, to think more deeply about how they structure their capital markets. There's certain liberalisation of financial markets that can happen, but also they are one of the largest holders of FX reserves around the globe, if not the biggest. As a result, what does that mean? Effectively, they've got the tools to manage any transition of debt or any debt crises relatively smoothly and prevent that sort of hard stop mark to market issue, which can sometimes cause a crisis to crystallise. And they don't have to have a deep philosophical argument about whether to nationalise the banking system (laughs) because the banking system is already pretty much state owned. Well, this is true. And a lot of the debt sits on the SOEs. So the reality is, in many cases, it's a transfer within a ledger, as opposed to even across different elements of the balance sheet. So I think it's right to be concerned from a growth angle. It's probably wrong to be excessively concerned that China are facing some imminent debt blow up. So let's talk maybe a little bit about emerging market debt more broadly. I mean, you've observed that relative to the developed markets, some of the risks are building up in emerging markets a little bit more, that the leverage is growing across those economies. And also our long-term capital market assumptions pick that out as a relatively attractive space in risk-adjusted terms. How do we reconcile those two things? If you see the strategic case, how do you sort of manage those risks in the nearer term? Well, I think you've got to look at the pace of build-up and the level of aggregate leverage. So to my mind, the thing that sticks out, and I think what concerns people is that we've seen a very rapid acceleration in terms of debt to GDP in the emerging world. However, the absolute level of debt to GDP itself is not that high. Now, arguably, emerging economies would be at the margin more fragile 
to debt load than developed economies. But, you know, if you look at it across the non-financial corporate sector, typically you're seeing in the BRIC economies, excluding China, something around about a 50% debt to GDP in non-financial corporates, which when you compare that with the likes of the US, which sits at a little over 70, the UK in the middle 70s, that's not that high. So there are some concentrations, but it's more the case of the build-up. And it's been a very rapid acceleration. And there's a number of academic papers out which suggest that when you accelerate the level of debt quite quickly relative to your your long-term trend, then what that can do is that can drag on growth further out. And it's that that causes us a level of concern. So, yeah, I think if we look today, we've obviously had a politically, we've seen the world take a slightly more protectionist, more populist turn of late. And that would give us some concerns about emerging market, in particular, emerging market debt. However, over the longer run, we think the debt is serviceable when you look at the pace of growth in emerging markets, which outpaces the developed world by three full percentage points. So given that that sustainability of growth, we think that the debt level as it stands today is probably sustainable in the longer haul and current spread levels are probably attractive if we look through the cyclical issues that we probably face today. And I think when you take that longer term perspective, I think we still believe whatever the change in view that's come after President Trump's election, we still believe that relative to past cycles and past experience, interest rates are likely to be lower for longer over the next 10 years than they have been in the past. Not that they won't go up, but that the sort of overall average cost of money, if you like, over the next 10 years is likely to be relatively low compared to some of those past cycles. And that in turn affects the sustainability of a given debt stock, whether it's public or private, whether it's emerging market or developed market. We still think that's the case. Actually, that's one of the points of circularity as well. It goes back to your earlier question, Sorka, which is what, what are the capital market implications? And lower for longer, for all we've seen recent moves in bond markets, you know, tear that up and throw it away, it's still a theme to consider because ultimately we will end up with a lower level of equilibrium growth and thus a lower level of equilibrium interest rates and probably a much more shallow normalisation path. And part of that comes down to the fact that we are dealing with quite a high debt load, which at the margin constrains growth. So you know, even though we can see bond yields uh, sort of selling off quite aggressively today, the reality is it hasn't really meaningfully changed our long-term equilibrium assumptions. So lower yields, slightly shallower yield curves, again, are something that is a consequence of this greater level of indebtedness that we see around the globe today. And the structural supply of savings, which is yes, still indeed. much higher than in the past, although we mentioned that in the article because it's obviously been a key factor. You know, I think it is important for investors. We get so caught up with what central banks are doing, what they've done. And of course, they've done lots of exciting things over the last five to eight years. Um, but fundamentally, you know, they are not really the reason why we're in this low interest rate world. There are deep structural forces on the terms of the supply of savings, the amount of savings, also the appetite for investment and the demographic forces of the last 10 or 20 years, all of that has contributed to this lower interest rate, lower growth environment. And that does not get changed, you know, whoever's at the Federal Reserve, whoever indeed is at the Oval Office. So indeed, you preempted my question, which was, <laughs> you know, how does a Trump presidency change things? But I think you're both saying in the long run, it probably doesn't. Not the end point, but perhaps the path and the uncertainty along the way. And the path, let's face it, you yeah. know, it's quite hard to be really only fixed at the 10-year time frame, even though the long-term capital market assumption is extremely good at focusing the mind on that longer-term perspective. The way you get there does matter for most investors and certainly for most portfolios. So it's not that we would ignore that. And I think I'm sure John will want to, to comment on, you know, how much the immediate 
immediate environment has changed in the next one or two years. I think even if it continues to affect investor sentiment as much as it has, and then actually is perceived to have delivered the Trump administration, at least on some of the fiscal expectations, the the looser fiscal policy, and has not disappointed investors in actually sort of sticking to what Donald Trump said on the campaign trail when it comes to more protectionist anti-globalization rhetoric. If things continue broadly as investors have decided they will over the next few weeks, you know, that could change the path for US interest rates over the next year or two and meaningfully change the last few years of the US cycle and potentially the global cycle may make it slightly shorter, but contain faster growth. So I I don't think we would dismiss those effects for investors. I think it's something Mm -hmm. that's very important to look at. It's just, again, if you keep it in perspective, if you think, but does it mean we're in a meaningfully higher interest rate world from a 10-year time frame? The answer I don't think is, is yes. I'd answer it actually from a slightly different angle, but come to the same conclusion, which is at times like this, when we have got effectively the deck of cards thrown up in the air to a degree, you do need that long-term perspective and you need to go back to the long-term anchors. So anchor number one, world population growth. For all Donald Trump's various promises on the campaign trail, the one thing I can say with certainty is he's not going to affect working age population at a global level. So we have that trajectory going where it's going, whatever politicians do. If we look at what's going to happen in terms of trade, that has a direct effect on productivity over the longer haul. So that's possibly the lever where we could get some flex. And you know, when I look at both of those, at the margin, more protectionist, more populist policies would tend to be slightly negative for productivity as opposed to positive. So when we look at the longer term, there's nothing that we're hearing today which makes me think we should be pushing up our long-term growth forecast. As a result, our longer-term equilibrium yield anchor remains where it is. Now, I concede absolutely that the markets are today giving the benefit of the doubt that fiscal stimulus may have a meaningful effect on growth. It remains to be seen how successful it is, but I think you know asset markets are moving to price it and will probably continue to do so. So in terms of the short-term cyclical nature of things, interest rates perhaps accelerating upwards maybe a little bit quicker than we would perhaps expect against our equilibrium but ultimately if the growth levels are unchanged then they will over time we think come back to a more steady gradual path and it's that that's going to dictate the long-term future as opposed to you know the near-term policies and policy rhetoric in the first few weeks of a president-elect's term. And I do think it's very hard to see where you get any increase in the U.S. potential growth rate, not just the labor force growth, Mm. but actually productivity in the U.S. is unlikely to be meaningfully affected by the kind of spending that he's talking about. It seems that the most likely scenario is a stimulus which is heavily oriented towards corporate tax cuts and privately funded or certainly privately led infrastructure projects aren't necessarily the kind of projects that would add most to the longer term growth rate. Yeah, do bear in mind as well, this is the first time anyone's talked about pro-cyclical fiscal stimulus. It's never been tried. We don't know whether it will end up with real growth or whether it will merely cause an episode of inflation. If it causes an episode of inflation, the problem you have then is that you run into the supply side constraints quite quickly, Fed find themselves behind the curve, and you get that classic exuberant end to a late cycle. Like Stephanie says, it could bring everything sort of back down quite quickly, which is ultimately why it's very important. Have that long-term anchor and recognise that you know today we, we just don't know how this is going to play out. But either way, its ability to meaningfully 
push up that forward growth curve is not that great. I like the idea of never having had a pro-cyclical fiscal stimulus. Certainly not one on purpose. <laughs> I think we've had, yeah. we've had a lot of pro-cyclical fiscal stimulus, but they've usually been the stimulus you were trying to do in the recession, but it took you so long to do it that by the time it came along, actually, it was quite pro-cyclical. But certainly not something that we've really set out to do very much in the past. And of course, the interaction with monetary policy is going to be another sort of interesting dimension. And, you know, given now that central bank balance sheets are outsized, how do you see that evolving as we go into this sort of period in markets? Is that going to get normalised onto bank balance sheets? Are they going to be able to reverse it? How is that going to play out, do you think? I mean, I think there's quite a lot of things going on there because you have the sort of new higher level of government debt, some of which is sitting on the central bank balance sheet because of quantitative easing, those purchases of sovereign bonds. And, you know, for all the reasons we just we think that we're not looking at a very likely, you know, rapid reduction in government debt, probably, because the best way to reduce it is to grow out of it. And we don't expect to get the kind of growth that would allow you to do that. So that's certainly going forward going to be a constraint on fiscal policy in terms of what governments can do in response to a crisis, potentially. But given low interest rates, we probably also think it's sustainable to have continued higher levels of public balance sheet debt. When it comes to the actual central banks, I think most of the central bank governors, certainly Mark Carney in the UK and many senior members of the Fed in the US, have suggested that the size of the central bank balance sheet will need to be larger. Even independent of what happens with the cycle, they feel that you will need to have more room for manoeuvre on that front because you're more likely to have to go into the kind of unconventional measures that we've seen in the last few years in a world where interest rates never get very high in order to stimulate the economy if you need to change rates by four percentage points worth and you've only got, you're only at two now, well, that probably means you're going to have to do more unconventional stuff. And so it's helpful to already have, you know, more room on your balance sheet. I think also because of the changing structure of the financial sector, the fact that there's now probably permanently going to be bigger spreads built into lending rates, again, which in many cases, certainly Mark Carney has suggested that that would point in the direction of the central bank having a bigger balance sheet to play with. Will they continue to be as large? And will we perhaps in a year or so's time be very focused on the Fed's policy on the balance sheet and whether it, how quickly it's going to let that stock of debt mature, I think is certainly something that's going to be debated over the next year or two. The notion that we're going to see central banks proactively start to sell bonds, I think we're a long way from that world. We'd need much, much higher growth globally. And cyclically, there is scope for that to happen, even though we've got a lower benchmark expectation for long-term growth. But I think it's some way off. But look, Central bank balance sheets are bigger for a reason. The reason is simply this. We've replaced a multiplier, i.e. the credit or the money multiplier, with an absolute number. And when you replace a multiplier with an absolute number by construction, it's got to be a big number. And I think at the moment, there is very little evidence to suggest that the money multiplier or the credit multiplier is picking up to anything like the level it was at before the crisis. Because, of course, it relies not only on supply of credit. It also relies on demand for it. And demand growth for credit has been relatively sluggish through this you know, post-global financial crisis world. So as a result, the central bank balance sheet, essentially, if you think about it in a broader framework, is actually operating as a make-weight to that broader stability of the financial system. So I don't see that being taken away anytime soon. Of course, at the margin, if we were to see a major pickup in terms of credit formation and the credit multipliers, then of course it would become a problem. But it's that that's going to lead us into a very different world than the one we're in today. And it's certainly not one when we look at the bloated balance sheets that we have already around the world that seems like it's going to be a meaningful risk in the intermediate term either. 
But in a tightening scenario, I mean, aren't we at a level of debt where any tightening could very quickly sort of choke off any growth that was coming through from the change in fiscal policy? I mean, what's your views and how those might interact? But it sort of becomes a self-denying prophecy Mm. because if you have very high levels of debt, that means a given increase in interest rates can be that much more effective. That's certainly something that's noted in the UK, that now you do have these relatively high levels of household debt, which are completely sustainable at this very low cost, low interest rate that we currently have. But it means that for any given effect on the economy, you probably need to raise interest rates slightly less than in the past, which is another reason why many central bank governors have pointed to or have suggested that interest rates will peak at a lower level, that this sense of that the neutral rate for policy in real terms will be lower than in the past. Yeah, I think I saw some figures from the Bank of England and I backed it out. And I think it was a 200 basis point increase in the base rate in the UK takes the number of households who are in an extreme debt stress, which is greater than 40% of income going on debt servicing, from 1 in 20 to 1 in 12. So that's a 2% move. And you look at the trough to peak in terms of interest rate cycles, that's a relatively narrow move. You know, Again, you've got to, I think, consider the level of nominal growth that we're dealing with as well today. We've got inflation relatively under control, all things equal, and growth trend growth relatively lower than it's been in the past. And that means a relatively lower level of equilibrium terminal interest rates. So, of course, by construction, you've got less of a hiking cycle. But I think it's just a recognition of the world we're in today. Part of that can probably be traced back to the increase in debt load. But I think that you've also got to consider the fact that we are in a world with an aging population, which means lower growth. And fundamentally lower growth means lower interest rates. So that sensitivity, that lower trough to peak is probably just the nature of the world we're in today. Well, interesting stuff. Maybe to close, I could ask each of you to say two or three things that you're specifically going to be watching over the next 12 to 18 months and why. What I'm always watching is the dollar. I think it's been certainly the last year and probably over the next year as good a signal as any of where the world is heading and whether it's moving in the direction of a slightly more balanced global economy or moving in the direction of more imbalance. We were quite comforted this year by the stabilisation of the dollar after that very strong run-up, which did cause stress for emerging market economies and for other parts of the world. The fact that the dollar's now started back up again, it's happened for understandable reasons. We think it's not dangerous at this point. But it is a sort of negative signal that still the US is to some extent the only game in town is still the driver of global growth and that investors at the margin are less optimistic about the prospects for true reflation in other parts of the world. So I think in terms of monitoring whether we're moving into a kind of safer, more balanced direction for the cycle or more continued imbalanced over-reliance on the US, I'd be looking at the dollar. And going back to what we've discussed throughout this, I think I would also be wanting to keep an eye on long-term expectations for US rates and for global rates. You know, we've had this period where over time we've ratcheted down our expectations for global real rates to the point where they had reached, I think, extremely low levels over the last six months or so, where people weren't expecting the US federal funds rate to go beyond two. That's probably an extreme reaction to the kind of growth that we'd expect to see in the US. So I would expect that to go up a bit, our expectation for the maximum level of the Fed funds 
funds to be higher than that. But if it starts moving up quite dramatically, I think that would tell you quite a lot about changing expectations for global growth dynamics and would have big implications for emerging market economies. Because one of the things that is a source of comfort to everybody looking at emerging market economies, looking at some of those run-ups of debt that we've seen, particularly in some countries and corporate sector balance sheets, is the somehow that the downside, the maximum increase in the global cost of money is not going to be as high as in the past. If we start thinking actually that, that the potential increase in the global cost of money could be quite high, then that could have a real effect. But for all the reasons we suggest, we don't see that happening, but I think it's important to keep an eye on it. Yeah, I think specifically with relation to the concept of debt, there's really two things I'd focus on. I think first and foremost, China is the area where we've got this acute problem with corporate and financial sector debt, albeit within a relatively contained system. Of course, next year is the 19th People's Congress. And so I think any indication from Chinese leadership as to how they see the economy shaping out over the next five years, and in particular, any liberalisation of financial market practice or capital market practice will be something to be closely watched to get an idea of how they intend to deal with that particular debt issue. And again, I do have every confidence that they've got the tools and the ingenuity to deal with it. But I think your know, markets could be a little bit volatile as they digest that kind of information. And then the second area is a little bit more work a day. It goes back to what Stephanie mentioned, which is you can get a situation where pro-cyclical fiscal stimulus, intentional this time, could indeed lead to a more exuberant end to the cycle. And from a debt perspective, where to look to really get a gauge of that is to think about how corporate debt is being used. If we start to see a pickup in the M&A cycle, a lot more corporate activity, issuance of mezzanine debt, higher valuations on corporate activity, that's the sort of thing that would get you moving from a mid-cycle issuance of debt to a more exuberant late-cycle issuance of corporate debt. And that could suggest it's perhaps time to pull your horns in in regards of thinking where the economy goes in the intermediate term. John, Stephanie, thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from JP Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments, and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, 
which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EU jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In India, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management India Private Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan. The Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001. CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited. ABN 5514-3832080. AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2016, J.P. Morgan Chasen Company. All rights reserved. Recorded 2nd December 2016.